stay tuned for The Lynn Show. Today, I'm airing the second part of my interview with the talented and charming Stephen Ludvack, winner of the Tony as composer and co-lyricist of the Broadway smash Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. If you listened to the first interview, I know you are eager to listen to the second one. It's fascinating. Hang on. Here come the show. Hearing from an inner voice Finding choice where there's no choice With gentle prodding from the voice Oh You really can Deeper Deeper down You dive Where the child's gone To survive Find show is about being the person you really are, not the person you think you're supposed to be, not the person other people are, not the person somebody told you you had to be, or even sometimes told you you were, no, not even the person you may currently think you are, because so many people have experiences in their childhoods which discourage them from demonstrating something about themselves. And in my shows, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art, because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be who you really are. And in listening to Stephen, you are in no doubt that this is a man who is completely who he really is. In this interview, Stephen talks about his education, what he did after college, and the extraordinary story 
of how Gentleman's Guide came to be. It's fascinating. Okay, you are writing complete scores for the four years you're in college, and are you thinking, I want to write for the theater? Yes. You, yes. Okay, so what do you do? I had finished my bachelor's with a degree in music, comparative literature fell away, and I did almost a complete theater degree, but I didn't do the technical things, and I thought, okay, I'll have a music degree. <laughs> and then I thought, okay, I want some better training, so I applied to the Manhattan School of Music, and we had to compose something on the spot. So what I wrote for was for soprano, clarinet, and percussion, I think. And the text I used was the instructions <laughs> that, they, that they gave. Uh -huh. And um, I was accepted, but I was accepted as an undergraduate because I, I didn't have conservatory training. So, you know, I didn't have to take any of the electives. And I thought, okay, fine. There was an ad for the NYU Musical Theater Program. I thought, that's what I should be doing. But I didn't have $25. And then I literally found $25, a pocket of my overalls. And I applied, and the very crazy head of the program called me one day and said, I love your music. Click. It was so weird. There was a, a pilot program that summer, and in that pilot program was Robert Friedman, my writing partner on A Gentleman's Guide. He was very nervous, like, you know, I'm like, are we going to get in because you're in the pilot program? And I, I thought... Why was I not nervous? Oh, right, because she'd already told me I love your music. And so I went to that program. I got a lot of scholarships. I think I had staked my financial independence so that I was able to apply as some, not somebody who has a family. Mm -hmm. um, oh, but then I also remember when I left, when I left college, what I, I realized that I used to help people prepare for their auditions. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, I, I can do this. I can do this. I can get paid for this. <laughs> right. And so I charged $25 a lesson uh -huh. and immediately started working as a coach. Mm -hmm. And so for many, 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 many years, the mainstay of my income was working as a coach. Wow. And then the goal was always to write for the theater, but then in the middle of it, I stumbled into the world of cabaret. Because I could sing, Paulette Haupt, who used to run the O'Neill Theater Theater, division always said to me, you're wasting your time. You're getting sucked into the glamour of performing and you're a writer. Shut up and write. Wow. And I remember thinking at the time, I also have to make a living and people are getting to know my name and I'm writing songs. On the other side, there was Margaret Whiting who said, you're a wonderful singer. You should be singing everybody else's music. And I go, no, because there are thousands of wonderful singers. There are very few composers and very few songwriters who can sing. Yes. So I'm, I'm going to stay in this. It's that sort of speaks to this, what we've talked about somehow, sort of steadiness of vision. Yeah, it's, yeah, there's a through line. Okay, so tell me how Gentleman's Guide happens. Well, I was in college, undergrad, not sleeping one night, which was not uncharacteristic, and I turned on the television. And, you know, walked over, walked over to the little black and white TV, and <laughs> turned it on and went back to bed and waited till it warmed up. And yes. then it came on and go, oh, I don't like that, so I'll, turn, turn the, so I'll get up out of bed, I'll walk over, turn, turn the, the channel. Knob, right. That happened a few times, and then suddenly there was the movie Kind Hearts and Coronets. And I, oh, I know this movie. This is my, one of my dad's favorite movies. And I watched, and I bolted upright. Now, do you know Kind Hearts? Or do you know Gentleman's Guide? I know Gentleman's Guide. Well... Kind Hearts and Carnets, you know, they're both based on the same source material. There's our murderer, and there's the woman he's always been in love with, and the woman that he romances. And I, th I remember thinking at 18 or 19, I went, oh, it's as if Curly is in love with Lori, but is sleeping with Ada Wan. I do it, and I thought, oh, that's so interesting. 
I thought it's combining the A and B story, because then the A story is the murders. You know, in 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 Oklahoma, the A story is Laurie and Curly. If you look right. at it that way, and the B story, you know, is and Judd is part of the A story. Um, and I and like it, it all mapped out like that. And I went, well, this is a musical, and this is mine to write. I know I don't know how to write it now, but I know I will. Oh my God! Isn't that weird? But actually, given what we're talking about, it it's makes no, sense. It makes perfect sense that that would be that that I would see all of that and also have the have the absolute lack of humility to go. Oh, I'm going to know how to write it, but the humility or the accuracy to say, Oh, I I don't know how to do that now. Okay, so you're 18. You see this, and it arrives much as. Uh, the first piano lesson tells you you know what you're doing and you have this dichotomy yet again of this is mine to do I can't do it yet that's so unusual and there was an opera singer um, a young man named Chris Arneson who was wonderfully gifted and also beautiful and I had an incredible crush on him I said to him, I would like to write something for you someday he said that would be wonderful and I went into a practice room and I might even have found a text that I wanted to set and I thought I have no idea how to do this Wow I thought I have absolutely no idea how to write for that kind of voice. I was, it, it was depressing to me yes. because I figured it was a lost opportunity yes, right. on many levels. <laughs> yes, right. But I thought there was another one of, I hope someday I'll figure that out. Okay, so did you set about to become able to do this? Well, I mean, sort of, yeah. There I was looking at kind hearts and coronets going, I will someday be able to do this. And so I went to school to become a serious composer so that right. I could. And then I went, no, the theater thing opened. I went, no, that's really the place for me. And I was in that program. And oddly, although it's not unconnected to what you're talking about, I didn't work very much when I was at NYU. I worked just enough so that I had everybody's respect, but not enough to actually walk out of there with a body of work. Wow. Which is interesting. Mm -hmm. I, had, I, I had a friend for many years who used to say to me, you don't work very hard. Yeah. And I would think, oh, come on. And of course he was right, he's also a shrink. <laughs> and he said, if I had your ability, I would just work harder. Wow. And at a certain point, I got to a point that I just began working harder. We got the rights to kind hearts. Yeah, tell times. me how that happened. Well, <clears throat> it's kind of a great and weird story because I was in a yoga class and the teacher said, what do you want to dedicate the class to? And I said, I want to dedicate this class to a project that I will be able to see t through to fruition that will bring me great joy. And, and it's not that I've been thinking about it. No. It's a voice came down and said, now you'll get the rights to Kind Hearts and Cards. And when was this? This was 2003. Wow. And I got on the phone to an attorney that I knew socially. First I called Thompson & Thompson, which is the company that does copyright searches. And they have the, we do it, we'll, we do it and we'll take our time. We do it and we'll take a little bit of our time and then we'll get it to you lickety split. Right. So I t chose the middle price, which was like three fifty something like that, which I didn't really have. But I gave them the credit card and um, I called this attorney and she said, cancel the copyright search. And I thought, what kind of cheap ass lawyer is this? She said, we'll go on the internet and see who owns it. And we found that it was the company Canal Plus, a big French company. She said, I can take you no further. I said, why, what? She said, I don't speak French. And I said, oh, well, I do. And so I, I got on my dictionary and I looked up a couple of words like rights, like, you know, contract, just to be sure. And in my halting French called, got to somebody and said, do you have the rights and are they available? And he said, firstly, you can speak English. Secondly, yes, we do have the rights. Thirdly, they are available. And what do you have in mind? What do you want to do with this? 
And, um, yeah, and I said, and we began talking, and he said, there's a famous scene in the movie where Alec Guinness, who played all the Dysquiths, well, all the Dasquines in the movie, they, they did a trick photography, and they, you, you, would, you saw him, you saw him as each of the people he played in one scene next to each other. It's a, it's a famous scene. What they did was they exposed like, like a sixteenth of the film each time, and, and it took like three days. Wow. You know, it's like a, you know, a minute long scene, right, something right. like that. 1949, so we're not talking very complicated te- technologically. And this representative of the film company said, well, what are you going to do in that scene? And I said, I don't know yet. I said, I deflected. I said, do you know all your, all your movies this well? And he said, well, this is kind of the crown jewel for us. Uh-huh. And um, I sent him some material, and I got very nervous because it was FedEx, and then I discovered FedEx doesn't deliver to Europe in a day, and I was in a little bit of a panic. And then I spoke with him a little bit later, and, and I said, well, we were talking, and I said, well, if I'm lucky enough to get the rights, and he said, look, at this point, it would be churlish of me not to give them to you. <laughs> and I called my agent at the time, and I said, I think I just got the rights to Kind Arts and Coronets. Same part of the story, here's your theme. And he said, well, I hate to break it to you. It's not such a big deal. And I thought, oh, you have no idea. That's right. I thought, you, you are completely wrong. Right. I said, because I knew that everybody wanted to make a musical of this mm-hmm. over the years. And we did get them, not in a very good contract. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this is a very big part of it now. Robert and I began working, and it was going really, really well. And we won awards, and we did a presentation. But... As we began gaining traction, mm-hmm. they were less and less enthusiastic. And in the very short version is, they ultimately pulled the rights. My attorney found the best intellectual property attorney, I'm going to say in the world, because he kind of is. And, um, and I remember I met with him, with Barry Slotnick, our intellectual property attorney, and Gil Carson, my transactional attorney, $1,350 an hour. Oh and I had an hour with them. I mean, you know, at that time, yes, it makes me laugh because the lawsuit was almost a $500,000 lawsuit. Oh, ultimately. my God. But Barry said, so you want to make a musical based on Israel Rank, which is the name of the novel on which the film had been based? And I said, yes, I do. And he closed his folder and said, you can. Yeah, Go ahead. Yeah. And, and I said, I can. We can, Robert and I. And he said, yes, you can. Anything that's in the novel you can use anything that's in the movie and in the novel you can use because it's in the novel anything that's just in the movie you cannot use and of course anything from your own imaginations is yours and so we worked very closely with him and he said you're, you're going to love me at the beginning and then you're going to hate me because then I'm going to start to say no the, the hating part never happened nor did the saying no really because we were careful and we really understood how how this is going to work we had a question where could Monty our our lead formerly Louis in the movie formerly Israel in the novel, but Monty in the musical, could he be arrested for a murder he didn't commit? Yeah, right. And, um, and I said, let me get, I said, Barry, I want to guess the answer. A man is arrested for a murder he didn't commit, you can use. Right. A man is arrested for this, this murder, murder in the movie, right. you cannot use. It. And I remember Robert said, how'd you know that? And I said, I've been listening. Yeah. I mean, cause that's, because it's that's, in the movie, right? Because, <clears throat> because that's what they the, said, yeah, right? Because that's, it's in the movie. That's, that's right. right. Exactly. That's I got right. it. Wow. Okay. So, all right. So you write it. Well, so, so, um, so we write. Just we write to the film company when they mm-hmm. say that we're pulling the rights, and we're saying, well, we don't need your rights. We anyway. don't need your rights anyway, right? And they say, oh, careful, careful, careful. Uh, we rewrite it. Everybody's happy. We get a production. We have a producer ready to move us to New York. We announce that we're going to open at La Jolla. We get sued. They decide to sue us. The theater takes a giant step back and says, 
We don't want to touch this, right? Um, the producer says, "Oh God!" Giant step back. I think that producer was afraid that that we were going to uh, ask said producer to pay for our legal fees, and said producer is someone of some wealth, and um, and the feeling was not my problem. Right. Said producer came back when everything was over and said, right. "Want to get together?" And we said, "No, thank you." And said producer, "If this is another case of I made a mistake, I should have, right?" Well. Actually, yes. Yes, That's it is. Right. It is. And and ultimately, the production covered the legal costs. I'm sure it did. That was that was I'm that sure was our, our requirement. That right. was that was not uncomplicated, but everybody agreed to that, and that and the show ran long enough, so that was all paid. And the show recouped. We did recoup. Like, yeah, I'm sure. I'm the, sure it did. The, well, I mean, we you know we went through this lawsuit, which was miserable. Oh my God! They they went through with it. The, oh, they absolutely did. And um, you know, Barry said, "I know these people. They're gonna. I think they're gonna kind of come after you, but I think they'll settle." So he said, "Okay, you know these people," and they kind of tried to throw everything in the book at us. Yeah. And they were not interested in settling. Wow. They wanted to stop us dead in our tracks. Yeah. This was their crown jewel. This was their crown jewel. Right. And. Um, and once you've done this. Doesn't this mean really nobody can do it, it right? Nobody would. Why nobody would, would. Why, exactly, why would right, they, exactly, they, right. And, um, and it's their own foolishness. Of course, it's the same thing. They made a mistake. They should have gone no, with you. Right. It's, I know. It's, right. it's, it's astonishing how often that happened to you. <laughs> it's you know. so interesting what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, over and over and over again, people underestimated you. It's remarkable and and again it's that same thing they underestimate you they say no they say you're not good enough or you can't do it and you don't listen it's wonderful and, and I don't listen right it's wonderful okay so you have this ridiculous lawsuit we have this ridiculous lawsuit and I was sitting in my shrink's office mm -hmm. and um, I'm much too happy to say that um, from the day we were sued one year one month one week and one day later the phone rang, and I said, oh, it's Barry, and my, my shrink said, answer it. Yeah, right. And Barry said, hypothetically, what would you say if I said, you won your case? <laughs> I would say, I would probably say, hypothetically, I love you. And I said, well, you won your case. The judge dismissed the case against <gasps> us in its entirety, yes. writing a 46-page decision. Wow. 46 pages, the subtext of which was, don't even think of trying to appeal this. Somebody lost their job over that. <laughs> well, rumor has it that's that that this aforementioned person at the at the, 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 the film company yeah. sent an email out saying we will not do business with anyone who does business with anyone who's involved with the gentleman's guide to love and murder. They sent to America. Maybe, maybe you're not going to say this. They sent to America a British producer. Um, as a shill, <gasps> saying saying she was interested um, in producing the show, but in reality, she was sent by. She was a spy. She was a spy to see how far along we were, <laughs> okay. and apparently she went back to them and said, "Guys, it's over. You're done. You missed it. You blew it." Amazing. So okay, um, the the rest is history, right? Well, the the rest was. I mean, our producer said, um, and it, it won't. I mean, it won't surprise you. I, Robert would say the same. I mean, then we had to sort of start from square one, and I went out and beat the doors and called every person I knew and unbelievable every person I knew. And Robert said, Robert said before we opened, he said, "I want you to know that I know that had you not made this your life's goal, this would never have happened." So at that point, 
we win the lawsuit and then we have to find producers. And so I looked under every rock and right. knocked on every door and, and made and every it's right. Call. And so you give it your life and you find producers. And I found producers. And is it smooth sailing from then? Oh my God, no. <laughs> no, I think that's the thing. I keep thinking it's all going to be smooth sailing. I was just going to say, okay, fine. I've done, I've done the push. I've done the work. Okay, now. No. Another complication. I know, okay, I've done the work. I've done the push. Okay. I, I left out the time a producer died on us on this show. Oh, dear God. Yes. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, I mean, he was never really our producer, but he was interested in being a producer mm -hmm. for us. And, um, I mean, I will say artistically, mm -hmm. and by artistically, I mean through the writing of the show and the artistically producing the show, mm -hmm. working with Darko, getting it directed, getting it up, smooth sound. Right. Casting, not so much. But but all of that was um, was really joyful, and I couldn't be prouder of the show. Well, I mean, my God, and then you win the Tony. And then we win the Tony. Yeah, all right. I mean, my God. And then we win the Tony. What? I just repeating. And then we win the Tony. And then you win the Tony. And then you win the Tony. Right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So I have one more question. Go ahead. And it is, having given a life to song. What would you say about what that's like? What you think about it? What you feel about it? I... It's a funny answer that I would not have given had we not had the, exactly this conversation. My feelings about song have only deepened and enriched. And I find that I only love it more. <laughs> and I feel like I'm I'm on my game better than ever. And um, I feel spectacularly privileged to have been able to make a life at this. When I was at NYU a thousand years ago, and I would hear people like Julie Stein play a song, and he'd go, cigar in mouth, he'd go, that's a fucking great song. <laughs> and they would all talk like that. And Lenny would talk about his work and say, you know, he'd say like the old adage, um, music should be um, inevitable but surprising. Yes. And he would go over to the mm -hmm. piano and play the opening bars of Simple Song from Mass. And I would think, that's exactly right. Yes. That is inevitable but surprising. And, and I think, who are these people who talk about the, the work? the same way and I've noticed that I've become one of those people <laughs> where I'll play you something like I did before and I go mm -hmm. isn't this beautiful yes and and surprising thank you mm -hmm. and surprising yes I mean I also say to my kids at NYU I say, don't think for a moment that I think I am more talented than any of you here I said I'm older than you so I've been added longer and I can talk about it better than many of you but what I have had to do is persevere in yes. a way that none of you has yet been challenged with. And I've been very lucky, but I've worked really hard. Yes. But at heart, I don't think I'm more talented than any of them. And I do think that's true. I don't. I don't mean to suggest that what you said is not the truth. I think talent is not enough. But I think you are basically more talented than most of the people in that room. And that you always were. Hard for me to acknowledge. I have tears in my eyes. Own it. Thank you so much, Stephen. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> when you listen to Stephen, 
you know that you are listening to someone who is his very real self. And it is my hope that you are inspired by it. We're going to go out on a song from another of his CDs. This song is called The Dinner Party. And I'm sure that it will make you want to come out and see A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, which is in production at Florida Studio Theater. I was at a dinner party just a couple of weeks ago. All the guests were chic and or high-powered. The repartee was brisk throughout the lobster bisque and the salad course completely Noel Coward. But then the conversation took an unexpected turn and headed frankly where I thought it needn't. As one by one each guest did his very level best to talk about his favorite antecedent. As their relatives had been where mine had never been, this was a topic to which I could find no entry. They spoke of duchesses and lords, barons by the hordes, favorites of several kings who'd reaped their sweet rewards, several from the Mayflower, several who'd owned fjords. And we hadn't even hit the 18th century. But with a startling pate, which was lovely, by the way, a most alarming hush fell on the table. My hostess smiled, and you, what did your family do? I gave the best reply which I was able, and which I swore was absolutely true. We were bagel makers to the czar. The lineage goes back very, very, very far. I think Ivan was the one who, when fed up with the bun, sent his men in search of something starchy and bizarre, who came upon my uncle who had recently solved the riddle of how to make a roll with a hole in the middle. He served them fresh to Ivan's commissar and was thus named bagel maker to the czar. It's true, we were bagel makers to the czar in the land of sour cream and caviar. You see, I'm getting older. My hair is turning gray. Always in my face and figure I've both seen. No, I will not go gentle into that good night. I won't go with a whimper. I am going with a bang. Life's a song I keep on singing, not a tune that I once sang. I just keep returning like some goddamn Mash 
time has come and gone Oh, won't I please get off the stage Let someone else get on Well, I, I won't be relegated Or leave without a fight, no I will not go gentle Into that good night Still got some tang, so you won't. 